Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'd like to welcome you to the next episode of the Free Zone Frontier. And this is the discussion among free zone entrepreneurs. Free zone entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs in any industry who collaborate with other individuals from other industries, oftentimes between entrepreneurs and corporations with a particular individual and a corporation to create entirely new types of value in the marketplace. And I have a regular partner, Steve Krein, who has created a network of 350 startup health organizations in the world. These are entrepreneurial companies in 26 countries. And he's created funding for these entrepreneurs to each create solutions in nine or 10 very, very important areas of healthcare and medical science. And Lisa Sini, who is herself a prominent thought leader in the creation of great environments for senior living, which has become such a huge issue as a result of the pandemic in 2020. So we're going to be talking about coaching, that the industry that you're in actually has very dynamic parts of the industry. It has growth parts of the industry. It has areas where it slows down and almost starts going backwards. And the depleted is when the industry starts falling apart. So we're going to talk about this in terms of each of our businesses. And then is there a common map that we can all look at in terms of you know, how anybody in any industry could understand what part of the industry they're in, what kind of value they create to which part of the industry, and where they are. Are they in a good part of the industry? Or are they in a dangerous part of the industry? So this is going to be a fascinating conversation. And this is the Free Zone Frontier. So when you think about the future of senior care, and you're really talking about senior care with all the bells and whistles, and bringing as much of normal life into the setting of a senior environment, how much of that requires coaching of you know, a lot of different parts of that entire package that you're putting together? How much would really require custom design coaching? I think quite a bit, actually. Right now, it's kind of a one-stop shop. Everybody gets the same thing, and it's not prescriptive. And it really needs to be customized and written out for exactly how the person feels about it. You know, everyone has a different risk level. And some people want to really plan for the future. And so we put, like, blocking in all the walls and maybe even in the ceilings and different things so that if they ever needed help with assistance moving from here to there. And other people are like, no, screw that. I don't want to have any of that. I'm not going to put my money towards that. When I need something, I'll get it. So I think you really have to look at where someone is from a risk standpoint, from a health standpoint. You know, there's a lot of people that we meet that are 65, 70, and they think they've got five, 10 years left in them. And then the circles that we surround ourselves in, you're 156. 120, 140. That's a completely different discussion about how you live. Mm -hmm. A completely different discussion. So, you know, there's a lot of coaching that has to go into it to figure out where they are, to meet them where they're at, and then to help them plan for their future. So the exercise that we did a quarter ago for the value creation growth levels, you know, the ABC model that we did, You're dealing with 400, close to 400 entities in terms of the startup health enterprises, the businesses that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's a lot of different paths that they're heading towards in the future. It's not a common path, it seems to me, that almost each of them will be about 20% different from all the rest of them in terms of their own personal aspirations, their ambitions, what kind of jurisdiction they're in. You know, how are they connected into the global system and everything like that? But as far as Lisa goes, what I'd like to ask you is, this has got to be one of the most complicated. I mean, children, for the most part, have been getting a lot of care. Like, beginning of life has always gotten a lot of attention. You know, Stephen Poulter said, you know, by the time you've been through the pregnancy in the first six months, you've spent most of your medical budget for life. But end of life is going to become much bigger because we're in an aging population. Plus, you have the express train, the boomer generation, all moving 
practically, I don't know when the last one is officially 65, but we're moving close to it. So this coaching of all things senior seems to me to be vast and endless. It is. It is vast and endless. Part of it is because it affects the family so much. There's really nothing else that affects a family like this. When you have young kids, the grandparents or great-grandparents don't necessarily have to be involved unless they want to be. But when there are seniors involved, when it's your parents or in-laws, everyone's involved. Everybody's holding their breath every time somebody has a surgery. Everyone's got the, well, my sister's not doing the right thing. And all the siblings get involved all the way down to the grandkids or the great grandkids. So it filters down. Part of it's because there's money involved. The legacy can be spent down and people feel very differently about that. The other thing is an adult that doesn't have their faculties is a lot harder to take care of. When you have a child and you say you're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z, they're not allowed to do X, Y, and Z. But when you have an 85-year-old that shouldn't be driving and you have to take away the keys, Mm -hmm. that's a really hard pill. And also to watch and make sure that they're protected. Yeah. You know, I'm now the online dating expert for AARP and I've been married for 30 years, but it's because a lot of seniors are doing this online dating and how do you mm-hmm. them? make sure that they're not giving yeah. out their address? You know, all these little things, there's a lot of scams going on there, but they affect the family. I think that's the biggest thing is when you're younger, it's not as big of a deal. Yeah. Steve, before we get on to yours, I'm sure you have some thoughts about what Lisa's talking about here. Fascinating, Lisa. I have a question that I was thinking about as you were describing the uniqueness of the nuances of working with seniors and how much work you're doing with people who are also working with seniors versus the seniors themselves. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine that, especially on this theme of coaching and other things, that there's not dozens, if not hundreds, if not maybe even thousands of entrepreneurs and organizations who what you just described would be invaluable Mm -hmm. to them. And have you and do you work with entrepreneurs and others like yourself versus just the end consumer, especially in the free zone area? Yes. And that's what the whole mansion is about. It's about collaborating with not only my competition, but with manufacturers. So Shaw Flooring, which is a Berkshire Hathaway company, billion dollar company, they have a data mining floor that they haven't rolled out yet. So it's like a little Harry Potter. People walk across it. And then when somebody falls, you can call 911 or a caregiver. So that working with them, tweaking the products, there's probably, I'd say about 25 manufacturers that are collaborators that are going to be part of this, that we're working with directly to help tweak and then get instantaneous feedback from the real people that are using it to see value in it. I think there's a whole Rubik's cube, for lack of a better word, that you know, everybody looks at one little side and they don't realize all the different sides that every time you're trying to solve the puzzle, it affects somebody else negatively. Just getting the IT portion of this together has been way more challenging than I ever expected. So trying to get everybody together and to work towards a common goal has been a big challenge, but it's also, I think, what this house is going to do. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the interesting thing that really strikes me as a global issue in all industries is just the complexity issue. And my feeling is that the coaching is because of the complexity. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that is that complexity is always going to be ahead of our clarity and our solutions to complexity. Okay. Can you think about what the airline industry is all about right now after nine months? I mean, first of all, every airline is in a startup mode right now. So there's probably going to be a huge shifting of their leadership at head office. I mean, there'll be buyouts. So there'll be completely new owners of the airlines. And one of the things is their schedules have been in place for 40, 50 years. Like if you look at United, their schedules, they've bought 18 airlines to create United Airlines. And every time you buy their schedule too, you buy their benefits package, you buy their seniority, you buy that. So that's just one industry. And then, you know, multiply it by, you know, hundreds or thousands of different industries. They interact with each other. All these different industries interact with each other. So it's an interesting thing. So if you just accept that the complexity is the water for us fishes, yeah. you know, we're all swimming in complexity and there's no solution to it because 
you know, we have met the enemy and the enemy is us. We're the ones who create all the complexity. Mm-hmm. So Steve, just in terms, I mean, you have the big goals and yours, at least you have an advantage because there's endpoints or there's breakthrough points, you know, for the moonshots that you have. Okay. And things can get focused towards that technology, training, law, regulations can be all moved towards some of those. But there's a huge amount of complexity. I mean, if you took all your almost 400 businesses and just dealt with the issues that individually they each have to deal with in their separate you know, locations and environments, I'm sure that each of them can keep you busy for a couple of days talking about their complexity. Yeah, and what's interesting is that therein lies, I think, the macro opportunity for not just our organization, but the entrepreneurs who are in startup health to benefit from being around other entrepreneurs who share both values, mindset, and long-term vision. Because I think, and healthcare is a unique animal in that the aperture is so narrow towards the next 12 months or 24 months, or right now, maybe even the next three months. And in order to really achieve a health moonshot, you need to open up the aperture out, you know, a couple of decades and see what's possible with multi-quarter, multi-year collaboration with others and what's possible. And a lot of the funding and a lot of the customers and a lot of the advisors and people around the entrepreneurs in this sector in particular aren't pushing for big open impact goals that could take a couple of decades. They're saying, what can you do this quarter, this month, this year? And so a lot of the gravitational pull is pushing out the narrowness of the opportunity to really collaborate in a way that will result in the biggest impact. And so we think about the three tiers of A, B, and C, and you just stratify the community of entrepreneurs. Yes, we have, it's almost 350 companies in 26 countries. What's interesting is we, for a long time, just thought about them in aggregate. You know, it was first 50 and then 100 and then 200. Mm-hmm. And I might have mentioned this on the last podcast, or I forget which one it was, where I talked about, we started looking at cohorts and saying, for all of the entrepreneurs that started their companies or joined Startup Health in 2012 and in 2013 and 2014, and started to bring a different context Mm -hmm. to the community by being around other entrepreneurs or companies that are at similar stages, have similar number of years under their belt. By the way, some of the complexity is a lot worse for them. Some of it's a lot better. There's a lot more simplicity in many of them. There's a lot more complexity in others. But what's fascinating is if you start looking at the community and entrepreneurs around others at similar ages, company ages and stages, it's really interesting to see how much deeper the collaboration is and how much deeper the potential or the openness is to collaborating, if you will, because of some of the ambition and some of the goals they set out didn't work out. Some of them have been pushed back. There's been a lot of gravitational pull. And so they've had to navigate in reality a lot longer. And I think that's actually a helpful context to have, you know, seven, eight, nine years of iteration under their belt as they embark on for example, their planning of 2021 mm-hmm. versus it being their first year in operation or their second year. And yeah. so we're seeing there be a deep value in being around others who have dealt with or are dealing with things that are more related to where you are, in addition to being focused on the achievement of the health yeah. moonshot long term. Yeah. I'm noticing it because we have in coach you guys will soon be there. But I have 32 right now who are beyond 25 years, and I have four who in the last quarter crossed 30 years. It's really, really interesting to just get them with a group of other entrepreneurs to talk about their experience. And they said, you know, after four or five years, you get a system for your money, you know, how that system works. And he says, as you go along, you find a place where the world is changing, but you don't have to change. That there's a way of thinking about things that it's like water rushing past a spot. And it's interesting, you know, there's some things you want in the water and you get it out and everything like that. But you don't 
redefine yourself based on what the movement is doing. You don't redefine yourself based on the complexity or the disruptions or everything. And I've really found that about coach people, at least the ones who have shown up for the workshops since the COVID started. I mean, most of them are kind of saying, geez, I hope it doesn't end too quickly. You know, I'm making a lot of gains here, you know, like everything. And part of it is just that they showed up. You know, a lot of people just didn't show up. And my sense is, if complexity is the normal part of the world, then everything's going to be shifting. Well, if everything's going to be shifting, that isn't the interesting point. It's what doesn't shift. That is actually the interesting thing. And I think that I know you do this, Lisa, because to a certain extent, you're trying to create as least a change based on what the life has been before their seniors of what they have to do after their seniors. You know, I'm a senior for, I mean, I know. can we talk here, you know? I mean, I'm a member of AARP. I think our definitions, just like we were talking about earlier with coaching, kind of have to change and shift because when the word no longer fits, you know, in part of that word senior means to no longer add value in most people's yeah. minds. And I think we're really missing the boat if that's what we think. There's so much, you know, mentoring and creativity and brilliance that can be achieved for so long. And when you define, when you put that on yourself, that you're no longer valuable, mm -hmm. like that's what you, how you start acting. And, you know, it does become a burden for people. And if anything, I think that mindset has to shift. It almost is like you have to take an entrepreneurial mindset as you age. Yeah. Well, one of the things is that there's context for various stages in life, and we're now at a point where they're being created new because no one was expected to live this long, mm -hmm. you know, and we didn't have a, what I would call a critical mass of people who had any experience. I mean, there's roughly 70 or 80,000 centurions in the United States right now, people over a Hundred And they're doing lots of really, really great testing with these people and asking them conversations to see if there's identifiable characteristics, you know, physiologically, obviously, but most of it's mindset. They're just finding that there's kind of like mindset indicators, you know, personal habits or anything like that. There's drinkers, there's even smokers over a hundred, you know, and so they have some anomalies that they can't make a general rule for the rest of the population because, look, who just celebrated their 100th birthday, you know? So my sense is that this is entirely new territory because we just haven't had the territory to map out, whereas an enormous amount is known about early lifetime and the emphasis on getting new individuals born properly and raised properly and everything. There's enormous emphasis, but not so much on the back end because we just haven't had the experience. And besides, socially, they were supposed to be more or less worked out a private deal with their family or something, you know, with extended families. You know, my grandmother, my mother's mother died in our home, you know, and I think that my father's mother died in her home, you know, and... That doesn't happen these days, you know, so it's it's a very different type of situation. Yeah. Hey, Dan, can we shift back? I was interested as you started talking about the industry shortcuts yeah. and emerging and framing the coaching yeah. in all areas. Can you walk through how you're thinking about each of the four stages of the industry life cycle and in particular your alignment of the shortcuts, especially in the free zone collaborations and how they kind of at least from your standpoint, you know, take place and operate. Yeah. So this diagram's been around for a dozen years or 15 years. And, you know, you know you have something good when people just respond to it. And they said, well, that's really interesting. It gives me a chance to think about things. So I just saw all industries, you have an emerging stage. And usually that's a great stage because it's very much experimental. You can make all sorts of claims about things when you first start off, and regulators are slow to respond, so there isn't a great deal of regulation. And regulators only really show up where there's scarcity to be managed, okay? And uh, competition creates scarcity. So a lot of the beginning of an industry is very collaborative. You know, it's just people getting together. A lot of it's invisible. You don't know how this happened. So much of the early Silicon Valley 
Nobody was really aware of that, all that stuff that people were doing. Nobody even really understood the concepts that they were working on. So it's breathtaking, but the problem is you don't have scale yet when you're at emerging. And it's the introduction of the capital markets into the emerging model that creates the growth model. Okay, and this is where you're really creating major value of new, value of new solutions, but you're also creating the value of new investments that can really take off, you know. And the one thing that I think that the U.S. is the master of is that they have the greatest capital markets in the world of getting a new idea to the marketplace in the fastest amount of time. And that's why you know, the big companies are the big American companies. 50 out of the top 100 companies in the world are American companies. And the U.S. has a rule that basically you got a good economy if somewhere between 15 and 20 companies make it past the billion mark in market capitalization. And if you get 15 to 20 a year that are going into the billion into the billion mark, then the economy's in good shape. Everything's working well, all, you know, all the parts of the economy are working well. And that's a nice indicator, it's a nice indicator, but it shows that that money's being pumped into emerging to make them growth companies, okay? And it's tremendous talent magnets. That's why the visas are so important, is to get the talented people in at the right time to get them involved in growth. Then. The picture of the CEO appears on the front of Vanity Fair or on the New York Times magazine. He has all sorts of ideas about the world. And the moment that you notice that the entrepreneurial, to begin with, CEO of a real growth company wants to buy a sports franchise, you should short the stock. You know, or he's starting to talk about that what he really wants to do is save the world. Then you should short the stock right away because he's bored. He's basically bored. He's probably reached a level of Peter principle of incompetence, and they'll let him have all the photo ops he wants, but they're going to get him out of there. The market will let him know pretty quickly. I wonder what the guy at WeWork is doing right now. I don't know what he's doing right now, but you know. <laughs> but that was it. I mean, he was a philosopher on everything. He says, "I've understood the future of work and how work won." You know. It didn't play. It didn't really play. So then you go into status, and status is where you want the lobbyists. Status is where you want the regulators on your side, because now you're looking backwards and you're trying to kick the ladder down from your treehouse. You know? So the status people get there. And I would say that I think Facebook is at that point where they're trying to kick the ladder down. I think Google probably is, you know, I think Twitter is and everything like that because they probably, you know, the real heart of the market, they probably already exploited, you know, and there isn't that kind of growth in the future. So you're 38 years old, you're one of the richest people in the world and your future is smaller than your past. What do you do, you know? Come back to free zone. Who's managing that in your mind? If you just take those first three stages of the life cycle, which company do you think, especially given enough time, has transcended the kind of natural movement and stayed in the free zone or keeps coming back to the free zone to fuel growth? I think it's probably Amazon is probably the, I mean, I think that they're very, very simple at the center. I think they have a document, and the document can't be more than four pages. Yeah. Everything has to be translated. Any new idea has to be translated through the document, and he developed that when he was on Wall Street. Bezos did. You know How you look at a company, whether it's a— Yeah, the PRFAQ, which is like their version of the impact yeah. filter. Yeah. The other thing is that he's got a big goal, and you know Peter Diamandis said, since he's known him, he's— you know, they're basically contemporaries. I think they were at MIT together and everything else. And he says he wants to go to Mars. Yeah. So he's got a big thing, you know, that he's going for. And he said Amazon's just to pay for the Mars trip. And that's tough to compete with. First of all, they don't have to make a profit and you can't even compete with their goal. You know, like he's got such a big goal and it's a personal goal that he doesn't care about the status symbols and everything like that. He knows rocket scientists, that's what he was. So my sense is that it's the ability to continually emerge, 
the number one yeah. thing is that you got to stay in touch with what the emerging capability is that got you started in the first place and you don't get away from it you don't get away from it you just keep going yeah. back to the emerging and you do that through collaboration in my sense is yeah. you collaborate with people who are solving completely different problems in different areas and you bring their model back to your model and say well how does your model work here yeah, I mean, I think what you're talking about really is this notion of this not even being an industry life cycle chart as much as it is a personal or a company chart, yeah. a company life cycle as well. And the leadership, CEO in this case with Amazon, continually making sure the company stays entrepreneurial, stays excited about and thrilled by the free zone and the emerging kind of market and how many different times they've come back as an organization to, even though parts of their business are clearly growth status. I mean, I don't know how excited he gets about books anymore, but you think about all the other new parts of the business that have operated and grown in many cases, going back to that PRFAQ, back to the drawing board with a new business that has massive opportunity. And in this case, to transcend even what the company's working on to serve the personal ambition of the entrepreneur leading it. And I think there's an interesting connection back to not just looking at this as an industry life cycle image, but a visual on your company life cycle yeah. and how important it is to stay in that zone. You know, I mean, in my own, you know, much smaller world than Amazon, I've got to be scared every quarter that the next quarter's workshops are not going to be as good as the previous quarter's workshops. So I think one of the things that happens to companies as they get into the growth stage is they think that they've got the permanent formula for going forward, and you don't. And the moment that you try to blueprint fear out of your future, you're in real trouble. Yeah, that's it. So I cut you off before you got to depleted, but you kind of framed the emerging growth status, you got the Amazon piece coming back to a great example of somebody or an organization and a leader coming back to that. But talk about the jump from status to depleted and what the organization looks like as much as what the industry looks like. Well, you start at the status stage, you start losing your brightest people, okay? I think that that's the big problem when you have a growth organization is that first of all, people get a reputation because they've been with your growth company and emerging companies pull them away. And the other thing is, it's not as exciting now in the really successful growth company as it was when it was a chancy emerging company. Okay, and there's some people who just, they're extreme sports type of people as it comes to entrepreneurism. And if there isn't, you know, the next cliff that uh, we can see if we can get from the, this side to that side. And stock options really don't do that with them, you know, and a lot of them have paid a huge price personally for the path that they've taken. So I would say that I think that's the big thing. And so it's a talent loss. There's a brain drain that happens. And on the outside, they've got the PR companies, they've got the advertising companies, they're great packagers, and they've got that. They have a great front stage, and they can pay for the grand stage, but backstage, they're losing brain power and they're losing ideas. And whether your ideas get accepted anymore are not about the ideas, they're about your political status inside the company and everything like that. And then once it turns off, I think it's almost impossible. Apple's one of the few companies that I ever saw turn themselves around because they were, they were a quarter away from the ditch and they turned it around. Now it's the most valuable stock in the world. And I think Apple is too, but nobody knows what goes on inside Apple. I think Amazon talks about how they do everything that they do. So I think they're greater teachers than Apple is. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think about a number of our portfolio companies. There's a point in every, in every startup, at least life, where the question comes up of whether the entrepreneur, the founders is, are the ones to stay with the company as the company grows and matures into the growth stage. And how often investors and other people push to move the entrepreneur aside because they're not the growth stage and it requires a different type of leader. And what's fascinating is how just taking this thinking that you just reviewed around emerging growth status, you're actually getting rid of the entrepreneurial 
magic that brings you back to being an emerging company again. And it's almost as if this plays against any framework of saying the entrepreneur's kind of outgrown the company, Mm -hmm. right? Because what you're saying is the entrepreneur's outgrown the management maybe of the status and depleted parts of the company, but in no way, shape or form has that entrepreneur outgrown the need to still be useful and more importantly, grow the company long-term. Mm. And I think this actually, it's the first time I've looked at it from the framework of a company versus an industry mm. life cycle and truly appreciated the importance of being and maintaining the edge by staying in the free zone and honoring, if you will, mm-hmm. the importance of every organization, no matter how much they grow, no matter how big they get, no matter how old they get as an organization and mature they are, not losing that yeah. part of the magic that got yeah. them there. Yeah, and I think our who, not how concept is partially there. You know, I think that EOS with their visionary integrator is very key to me that Tim Cook is an integrator. Yeah. He's not a visionary. Okay. They're still probably implementing Steve Jobs' vision and product roadmap from, you know, 10 years ago for the next decade. Yeah. And he had all sorts of formulas about things. One thing is that you start with the box that the product comes in and you work backwards. You work backwards. They always started with the box. I don't know what the product looks like, but what's the box look like? What's it feel like to the customer to go into the Apple store and get the box and take it home and unfold it and everything else? And they put more intelligence into their packaging than probably any other company. And he always said, we're talking about experience here. He says, it's not about products. It's not about services. It's about experience. What's the experience? And I think they stay fairly true to that. And one of the experiences that I think they've really, really paid off for them over the last two years is privacy. You know, every time I go on Safari, 187 people have tried to profile you over the last seven days and we've stopped them. Yeah. You know, and I said, well, that's good. How many got through? (laughs) Right. Well, you know, it's even an interesting position how organizations use their app store and develop apps and they're able to kind of create a zone of protection for themselves and on the flip side for the collaborators. Lisa, I have a question for you just as you think about this as it relates to the mansion. How does this play into how you think about your collaborations, not just in the mansion, I guess, overall, but, you know, with your business? Yeah. When you were talking about all that, I kept on thinking about, you know, a company and a mother, like me being a mother, like I have my kids and all of a sudden somebody comes in and goes, hey, we're kicking you out because they're four years old and they need to go to school or, you know, go to kindergarten and that kind of stuff, which is the most ridiculous thing ever. Being a great parent is all about collaborating. It's all about like, hey, which school should they go to? Which Mm -hmm. sport should they be playing, which whatever, and making something better. And you don't stop being a parent or stop being a mother because you might not have the skill set to get your kid where you want them to be. What you do is you engage the right expert for them, particular to their learning style, their gifts, their unique abilities, and you grow them through that. But you don't just check yourself out or decide that you're no longer a parent. Like, I will never stop being a parent. My son's 26 years old. He's in New York City. You know, he calls me every day Mm -hmm. and calls me mama. And it's like, how are you doing, mama? You know, I mean, there is something about that respect and growth mindset that we have and collaboration. That's a beautiful thing. My daughter's in Israel, the same thing. And I think if you look at a company like that, where I might not have the right skill set to get you to your fullest potential, but I can collaborate with other people and still be the thought leader or the visionary of the essence of it. There's some huge power in being a matriarch or something like that. You know, I mean, Dan, you don't coach all the people, you know, you're able to impact so many more people because of Adrian and all the different wonderful coaches out there. And if it, we limited it just to the founder, it would be much less than, but on the other hand, If you weren't here and you decided to check out and it was just in your name only, it would be much less than also. You know, it has to be a bit of both. Mm -hmm. That's that wisdom share that Mm -hmm. I think we lose. Yeah. You know, from the inside, if you look at the backstage, you know, I have no comprehension how the team 
if Babs and I aren't there, how they would deal with it. And I've got nothing to say about it either. I mean, we've done everything legally, financially, and everything that it's possible, you know, it's possible. And we've got the leaders sort of picked out, and they know they're the leaders, and there's been long discussions about it. But I said, you know, it'll be different. And I said, I think there will be massive collaboration with a lot of the clients about how Coach would go if Babs and I weren't there. I think the two of you would step mm -hmm. in. I think Joe Polish would step in. I think a lot of people would step mm -hmm. in. But, you know, people say, well, what do you want to happen? I said, what do I care? I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, I mean, I'm a great believer in the incomplete life that you don't try to complete things. So you always leave it open that you haven't completed. I have none of this bucket list stuff. I don't have any of this legacy stuff. I don't have anything. It's just the next projects for the next quarter and where do we go that it's more useful stuff. I have none of the other stuff. And I've noticed nobody will be talking about Tony Shea six months from now. Right. That's gone, you know. In life, you only talk about the players. You don't talk about the players who aren't here anymore, you know. So it's an interesting thing. But my sense is that this industry life cycle, and essentially, you know, if you stay at the emerging stage and you keep an understanding of the DOS issues of the whole cycle, that you will always be creating new shortcuts mm -hmm. that the most aspirational people will find valuable. And that'll create the new emerging industry. Like, it's not one person, it's dozens, hundreds of people who are creating the new industry. It seems like a commitment, right? It's a commitment to stay in a zone as an entrepreneur, and even as your company grows, and going back to the tragedy of losing such a great entrepreneur like Tony Shea and hearing about it this past weekend, is this notion of the almost infinite amount of innovation and other things that he could have impacted if staying in that zone, right? And I read about over the weekend of the tributes and things, these incredible things that he did develop, whether it was at Zappos, whether it was in Vegas, whether it was the countless entrepreneurs that he helped, and he worked magic in that free zone. Yeah. And I think about as entrepreneurs, being able to live out your life, regardless of how you know, short it is or long it is, staying in that free zone. Even if your company outgrows staying in the free zone as a major part of the revenue streams and the major part of the growth. And I think that's an actual interesting nuance, especially in the startup world where companies grow and mature from pre-seed and seeds to early to later stage companies. And then there's pre-IPO, post-IPO, and the notion of does the whole company move through an industry life cycle or does you know the company move through it, but the, the leader, the entrepreneur, the more importantly, that innovation stay in that zone forever. Yeah. So that there continually is that is the matter. I think it's an interesting nuance, especially for my community, where the question is often pushed towards the entrepreneur's usefulness yeah. in their company. Not that he's the greatest public example, but the one entrepreneur who fascinates me the most because of his thinking is Peter Thiel. His whole thing is try to get through your entire career without competition. You're thinking wrongly if you're saying this will outcompete this, this will outcompete that. He said, you're not looking at the right thing here. You're not looking at value. You're not looking at innovation. He'll be that way when he's 90. I just get the feeling of someone who's going to be on the ball, he's going to be on the game as long as he's breathing. You know, and that's my aspiration. People say, you know, what happens at the end? I said, my staff is angry for about three or four weeks because how are we going to create the next workshop stuff? You know, the next quarter stuff. You know, I said, <laughs> they'd probably be really ticked off, you know, because I left them with such a mess. But it's just the game. How do you think about industry shortcuts as it relates to that game? So, you know, what's interesting is I just looked through your shortcuts for each of the four stages as you think about them and give us the context i think even for lisa and what she was describing how she's doing like developing the shortcuts for your organization and the people or the firms that you coach how does that connect in here well i think you start with the individual you know that in our case we're starting with the entrepreneur themselves 
And their problem is that they're not self-managed enough that they can attract good people. I would say that every entrepreneur, they just don't have this personal self-management. One is the way they handle their days is a mess, but they don't have a future that's very compelling. They have cash flow goals. They just want to make it to the first goal, but it's not very compelling to someone from outside. Okay. And whenever I hear people saying you can't find good people, and I says, the reason why you can't find good people is because good people aren't looking for you. You know, that basically you have to be a compelling individual. And the first thing is you have to look like you have your act together. Okay. Because people don't want a new job so they can clean up other people's messes. They want to be part of something that's growing. They want to be part of something that's exciting. So I think in the first two, three years, we work on self-management, time, money, relationship, purpose, you know, and then you can make the jump where you've got a self-managing company. Then it starts getting interesting because now you can look at real growth, okay? And uh, a lot of that growth just comes from the fact that the most important person in the company isn't doing stupid things. I don't think anybody in my company can ever criticize me that Dan's not working on the most important stuff. You know, I'm always there and I'm testing it. The other thing is the being in touch with the most aspirational of your clients, I think is really the most important thing. Your future is being created by your conversations with your clients who have the biggest ambitions for themselves because what they need as a value creation proposition hasn't been created yet. You've got to create it with them. Yeah, I noticed on that shortcut list, it made me feel, one, I, you know, it was a ton of stuff that you had filled out. But I started to realize that my whole company is created around shortcuts. That's the value proposition that I bring is really how do I make it easier, faster, cheaper? It's all the shortcuts. It's all those little tools and helping other people, like recognizing that there's a better way to do it and then writing it down and coaching somebody else through that. I mean, I think there's no greater high that when you see somebody that you've coached through it, you know, hit the ball further and it's the same person. Mm -hmm. You just tweak a little bit. You give them a little bit of knowledge and you tweak a little bit and then all of a sudden their drive is 300 yards. I mean, yep. you know, that's not a bad feeling. Yeah. Yep. Steve, what about you? I mean. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny because I've been going back to the old simplifier multiplier framework. There's this third person or third rail of complexity, right? So who's the simplifier? Who's the multiplier? Who's adding complexity? What's interesting is that I feel like maybe it was two or three workshops ago we talked about shortcuts as a framework. And I started thinking about the fact that we really provide shortcuts to simplify the complexity of achieving health moonshots. And that almost makes it really easy to separate those that want to have shortcuts or get access to shortcuts that simplify the complexity and those that don't. <laughs> and I think that industry life cycle or company life cycle graphic that uh, I hate to tell you, it goes back 20 years, not just 10 or 15, Dan, because we were, it was the early 2000s when we were talking about creative destruction and that framework for explaining how industries go through these stages. And so when you think about what do you do about this, because the industry lifecycle or the company lifecycle is going to happen, or whether you like it or not, simply a question of what shortcuts can you employ to simplify the complexity of going through those and adding now and staying innovative enough and collaborative enough to stay in a zone, not go with the company through the stages. Yeah. So I love it. And it's a great reframing even for what I'm doing is we're investing in really supporting companies long-term at achieving their health moonshots to really refine how we describe our role mm -hmm. for the entrepreneurs, for our co-investors and staying true to that. Yeah. One of the most innovative things necessary for all other innovations is actually that you're good at context. I read an article, it really took me back, and he said, you know, humans don't actually deal with reality. Humans deal with metaphors which explain reality. You know, like moonshots is a metaphor. It's a metaphor. Oh, yeah, I, I get it. I get the whole picture that you get everything together and you put... 300,000 entrepreneurs and other specialists got a notion that one day somebody's going to walk out and put their first foot on the moon, and we did it, and 
those other guys didn't, and we brought them back safely, and they didn't have that as part of their project. So the whole point about this is that I think there's tremendous excitement in this, but it's a metaphor. Yeah. Is it a moonshot? Well, it's not really a moonshot, yeah. you know, it's a metaphor. And I think that the creation of metaphors, like the industry life cycle is a metaphor. Does it actually exist this way? No, but it makes you feel confident that you can dig deeper and find out some useful things. The map is not the territory. Yeah. yeah. The metaphor helps simplify right? The framework, you know, it's interesting because as you just described that, I was, what came to mind quickly was the vaccines for COVID both came from collaborations between massive organizations, pharmaceutical companies, and startups. And it was actually a different mindset, right? You know, the pharmaceutical company didn't do it on their own. The startup didn't do it on their own. It was a collaboration where they both brought their unique abilities to the table, but I think that the two vaccines that we've seen announced, you know, over the past couple of weeks, coupled with Elon Musk and NASA's collaboration and going back into space with private and government collaboration, I think that we're now seeing really great examples within weeks and months now of massive collaborations where even though these organizations were incredibly large and complex, entrepreneurial breakthroughs were able to happen because they stayed in that zone. And I think that doubling down on that metaphor actually for me was like, again, why I keep using Health Moonshot as this massive collaboration example. And what you just described, I think, touches on oh, yeah. in the more recent nature, especially with the vaccines in space. Yeah, I think when we get a little space or time, you know, out of this particular crisis period, you'll see that this was actually bigger than the Apollo mission, and it was bigger than the Manhattan yes. Project, which, you know, they had 300,000, you know, in the Manhattan Project. It was $16 billion in present dollars to build the first weapons. But I think this is going to be massively bigger. First of all, it's not going to be one country. It's going to be the entire world. Having the vaccines, one thing, the distribution system is an, an entirely different project, you know, getting... It's another massive collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. I asked Peter, because I'm going on his longevity trip in August. He's doing Boston and New York. Boston, New York, and Washington, I think, are the three parts. He did San Francisco and San Diego. And, you know, it's in person. So you go, and they went in person in August and September, but, you know, they set some protocols out. But it was fascinating, his videos. And I said, you know, there's great breakthroughs that are happening, like actual solutions to problems. But I said, the strategic byproducts off to the side, what has happened to the teamwork, as you've seen it in the longevity world, and I guess in the COVID world, because he's got a startup that he's involved with in the COVID world. And he says, it's amazing. And he says, the virtual conferencing has really been the key. He said that you know, anybody anywhere can be in a call anywhere with any knowledge. So I think it, what we're working with, I think Zoom is the great technology, you know, and I don't think it has to be any better. It doesn't. I mean, we can collaborate. I, uh, for drawings and things that we're doing, anybody can draw together. They can do what they want. We're right here. There's no barrier to, you know, how I see you, Steve, and be able to recognize your facial, you know, recognition and, and whether you're happy or whether I'm taking a note, there's just immediate connection. Yeah. I was curious when you both were talking that it brought me back to when I did the Air Force and I was asked to sit in on a project management debrief and write a white paper. And I came out and they said, how would you do it? And I Basically, I was too ignorant to not know my place. And I basically said, well, I think you're doing it completely wrong. The private sector would never go about this this way. And so wrote it all up and they reworked the whole system based on my white paper. Is it that the small entrepreneurial companies and the larger companies actually need each other because you have the bandwidth of the larger companies to be able to do things that a smaller company could never do on their own? But the entrepreneurial small think tanks, for better, you know, word, really think in a different mindset, similar to how I came into the Air Force. I thought in a completely different mindset that they could never see that mindset because they were so embedded in it. And it wasn't until we merged together that we were able to create a better solution. It's almost like we needed each other versus yeah. one was better than the other. Yeah. 
Yeah. I think, you know, properly viewed from both sides, it's a real advantage. But, you know, they are siloed from each other. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs in the program, you wouldn't want to have that person in the room. You know, I mean, he's so rugged individualist that there'd be no sense of collaboration. There'd be no sense of process. There'd be no sense of, you know, stages that you do things in stages and everything else. But I think that the real thing is that the entrepreneur sees the final solution and then works backwards. And the large organizations tend to see the political realities and push forward with the existing, you know, Thomas Kuhn is still a great book to read, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, 1960s. They asked him at one point, what do you think is the biggest cause of scientific breakthroughs? And he says, funerals. Hmm. Old scientists who control funding, old scientists who control protocols, old scientists who control what's possible and not, they die. And he says, that's, that's what happens. I think the same thing happens in the business world. Die in one form or another. People die in lots of different ways, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for many, the pandemic created a lot of versions of that, right? Whether it was traditional retail, you know, whether it was physical travel that needed to actually occur to have great collaborations or sessions like we have here or at Strategic Coach or at Startup Health. And so you kind of think about what this really did to accelerate innovation and a critical mindset shift that you're kind of framing, Lisa, is I think the most important ingredient. You know, I say this a lot and it's one of the core parts of our thesis at Startup Health, which is mindset matters most. Mm -hmm. Mindset matters most. I mean, you put great talent, great People, great capital, great thing. If the mindset's not there, it just does not mm-hmm. work. That's the same thing with aging. I mean, I met with the medical director of AARP, and she said that as an ER doctor, when she was doing all her stuff, she could tell by the mindset when there was a car accident, who was going to live and who was going to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was I believe that. very rarely the injuries. It was the mindset. Yeah. Well, we've reached wrap-up time for me because I have to go into deeper pockets in a short period of time. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder what's in those deeper pockets anyway. But they have a million listeners, so that uh, appealed to me. And they're going to talk about who, not how. So, yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. Excellent. Dan, what's your biggest insight from today's session? The one thing is I got a lot of encouragement with And it's not just for a strategic coach, but it's for all entrepreneurs that there should be a component of coaching when you're thinking about your future, you know, that you're enabling other people to become skillful and focused. Lisa? I think the shortcuts, you know, and how I can coach other people through that. I, I think because they are more of a unique ability of mine, I didn't value them as much. And so quite often we kind of leave off the table the things that are easier for us. Excellent. And mine is the framework of the the good old industry life cycle framework applying to a company framework as well. And the importance of staying in that free zone emerging as the entrepreneurial leader and visionary and not letting yourself go into the growth part of the business, because therein lies, I think, the challenge to get caught up into hitting status and hitting a different trajectory for the organization. So this was great. As always, Lisa, Great to see you, Dan. Always great to have these conversations. You as well. Thank you. Thank you.